and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. And for the extended conversation with our guest today, be sure to check out our after show talk on Patreon, which is patreon.com slash scriptsandscribes. Today on the show, I'm pleased to have on a screenwriter, TV writer, and producer whose credits include NCIS New Orleans, The Librarians, Leverage, Judging Amy, and the big budget sci-fi epic Geostorm. Interestingly enough, before his writing career took off, he was a highly in-demand stand-in for such actors as Bruce Willis, Mel Gibson, Christian Slater, Tommy Lee Jones, Charlie Sheen, the list goes on and on. He is Mr. Paul Gio. Thanks for coming on, Paul. It is a pleasure to be here, Kevin. Thanks for having me. No, my pleasure. I'm, I'm really excited to uh, talk to you, not only about your writing, but about your career as a stand-in, uh, which I find absolutely fascinating. We were talking about it before we got on, just briefly, so... Excited to get into all of that. Um, first, I just want to ask how you've been during the whole COVID year, quarantine and all that, because that's something we can't just gloss over. Yeah, yeah. It's been uh, obviously, like it has been for everyone, complete madness. And, uh, you know, work-wise, it, it, it's, you know, it's been really, really rough, um, but that kind of pales in comparison to, you know, what's going on with, with people and health and like world and everything. But, uh, you know, like everybody, we're just, just struggling through it, keep paddling. And, you know, I feel like we're starting to see some light on the horizon, you know? Um, and I'm, I'm, I don't know if it's dumb or smart, but I'm, I'm really optimistic about the coming year. I, I don't think it can get much worse. <laughs> so Famous last yeah. words, right? Yeah, exactly. I probably just ruined it for everyone right there. <laughs> Great job, Paul. Thanks. Yeah, no. Thanks. <laughs> um, okay, so let's get into your background a little bit now that we've touched on the wonderful subject of COVID. Um, what was your first introduction to film and television? Um, you know, when it became m- for more than just entertainment for you? Yeah, it was... I you know, like so many writers, I didn't, I didn't have the most satisfying childhood really, you know, and, uh, and found different places to escape. And one of them was, was film, you know, and any chance I had to go to the movie theater, I would go. And I was, I was seeing all kinds of movies, you know, growing up in the seventies and things and movies I probably shouldn't have, you know, been watching it at, at younger age. And, I can remember trying to sneak into R-rated films when I was like, gosh, like 13 or something. And I'd put on, you know, my older brother's mirrored sunglasses thinking <laughs> thinking that suddenly would make <laughs> me look 17. And, you know, just having the people at the box office shake their head at me and be like, get out of here. Um, the first one I ever successfully got into, I can still remember, was a Chuck Norris film uh, called Good Guys Wear Black. Hmm. And that was my my first ever R film that I saw in a theater by myself. I don't know how old I was, but I was not <laughs> 17, that's for sure. So that then segued into I still at that time I was I was obsessed with movies and all that, but I didn't understand I didn't know anything about screen. I didn't know screenwriting was a thing. Mm-hmm. And I can remember and this is crazy. The moment for me where a light went on was I was at a friend's house spending the night. Again, I'm a, I'm an adolescent at this point, And we're watching Starsky and Hutch on TV, the original Starsky and Hutch show. And there was a scene where Captain Dolby, if, if anyone remembers that show, I'm really dating myself, but 
he comes in and he's yelling at Starsky and Hutch and he says something, something. And he says, and let's go out there and get those bastards. And that was like a cuss word to me then. And then I had just heard it on television and it blew my mind. I still literally remember this moment. And I was like, how was he allowed to say that? What was, how did that happen? I can't believe he just said that on television. And that led to my discovery that these things are written. Mm. And I, it never even occurred to me, you know, I thought these actors just say all these things. And so that started kind of my obsession with writing. And my, my first writing then from that was like, I would write short stories to make my friends laugh in school. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then that led, eventually I got into college and I met a guy and he and I, we left college to go to Hollywood with our screenplays that were written in spiral notebooks. That's how much we knew. Wow. Yeah, we showed it. We showed up in Hollywood with with two screenplays, and they were literally written in spiral notebooks. That's that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you still no have those? It took me a while to make it. Do you still have it? That's sort of a memento. You know what? I I do, and it's it's packed away. But I I just I recently moved. I moved in 2020, and I put a bunch of stuff in storage. And I found it. I found mm. this screenplay called Jessica, It's You. Wow. It's a romantic comedy. <laughs> nice. And uh, yeah, I still have it. Is that something that uh, you have a log line for that you can share? Or is it still hush hush because, you know, one day, <laughs> one day. Yeah, yeah I'm, 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 you know, I'm talking to, you know, Soderbergh about doing it. No, I, uh, I don't even remember what it's about. I only remember one scene in it that, to me, I still think it's one of the best things I've ever <laughs> written. Really? Which either either shows I was better than I thought or I'm really, really bad at <laughs> Or you haven't writing. improved at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I peaked too early. That's funny. Uh, what did you study in college when you were in college? I was a creative writing major. Okay. And, uh, and again, I, I had this dream of movies and TV, but I, I thought that was special people. You have to be born a screenwriter. So I was kind of taking these classes thinking I was going to write the great American novel. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, like I said, I I met a a guy who was in the same school that I was taking the same classes and we both had this big love affair with film. And then we were like, let's go to LA, man, let's make it, you know? And so that only took about 12 years after (laughs) the fact. (laughs) Right. The, uh, what is it? A 10 year overnight success story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, whatever happened to your buddy, if you know, did he end up also making it? You know what? That's a that's an interesting question because um, at one point, this is like like late eighties. Um, we're living in a studio apartment um, just south of Sunset and Gower, where I'm working the graveyard shift at the Denny's at Sunset and Gower, and he would work um, the night shift. So like he'd come home and I'd go to work and. I came home one morning and he was gone. Oh, and and he had been, it had really, he had really been struggling with the whole Hollywood thing and like being poor and trying to make it and not knowing what you're doing. And I came home one morning and he was just gone. His stuff was gone. And that was the last I ever saw or heard from God. I don't know if he's alive. I don't know if he's the mayor of Hollywood now. I have no idea (laughs) where he is. He just, I know he didn't, I know it wasn't, nefarious or anything because he took all his stuff right he just up and left and i never saw him again even after you had become successful had credits he never hit you up hey remember me 
No, no. Oh. And I wondered, and I, I tried a couple of times, you know, when the internet came along, mm. I tried to look him up, but he had a very, very common name, kind of like oh. a John Smith. So I'd never had any luck searching for him. Um, I ran, what's funny is years later, I still hadn't been a writer yet, but I was a stand-in. This was probably five or six years after that had happened. And I ran into a guy who I'd been a waiter with at Denny's. And I was like, hey, you know, and he's like, hey. And I, I said, yeah, I wonder whatever happened to, you know, so-and-so. And he's like, oh, I saw him a couple of years ago. And I said, where? And he said he was taking classes at Stella Adler. Oh. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know he wanted to be an actor. Right. And then I also thought, that's only a few blocks from where we were. Like, but I don't know. I never, ne I haven't seen him on screen yet. I don't know. <laughs> or maybe I have and I don't even recognize him. That's the weirdest thing. Yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. So you actually, this goes back to the introduction before your career as a writer, you were an actor and a stand-in. And a lot of, we've, I've spoken to a lot of, of writers, maybe not a lot, but a few writers who were interested in acting before becoming a writer. But that was their primary goal. Like uh, a friend of mine was, uh, worked at Video Archives with Quentin Tarantino. And Quentin was really wanted to be an actor. I mean, that's really what his goal was. And so I know a number of actors who wanted to be actors. Like that was their goal, not to be necessarily writers and filmmakers, but to be actors. And then they sort of transitioned because for whatever reason, the acting, you know, didn't work out or they became a successful filmmaker or writer before. And that just kind of transitioned. But you, it sounds like you wanted to be a writer first and foremost, and then somehow fell into acting and being a stand-in. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's not usually the way it goes. Yeah, I um, I never, I never had that desire to to be an actor or that. I mean, even in high school and even in college and making little short films with my buddies and stuff that I would act in. I never, I never thought about the acting part. It was always the writing and the directing part and the acting thing never really existed for me. When I got out to Hollywood, um, I wanted to be around movies and TV shows and I wanted to be on set. I wanted to be there with the physical production. So I didn't want to be a, a PA that was like, you know, doing a lock up on a you know, corner somewhere or, or out getting coffee. And I saw you could make money. I, I, I did some background work and I was like, wow, this is horrible. And, you know, cause they lock you away in a room and you don't, you know, and then I, through that, I was on, I was actually in Tucson, Arizona and there was a movie called Firebirds, which was a, a terrible ripoff of Top Gun. It was like mm. Top Gun with helicopters, Nick Cage and Sean Young. And I went down to the production office to, try to find some work. I just, and literally for money, just cause I wanted to be around it and like, what can I do for money? And they said, well, the only thing we have available is extra work. And I was like, Oh God. So I go over to that guy and he's like, Hey, how tall are you? He's like, we need a, st a stand in for Nick Cage. And I'm like, what's a stand in? And he's like, well, it's like being background, but you get paid more. And I was like, I'm in. <laughs> and that was my introduction to it. And when I, when I, saw what that job was and I was like oh my gosh I'm right there with the director and the DP and the actors and if the writers allowed on set and it 
it, I just discovered that it was like the greatest job in the world because you were separated from the background people. So I didn't have to get locked away. You had to stay right there on set in case they called for you. But in a, like a standard 12 hour work day, a stand in works maybe four or five hours. So the rest of that time, I was just there absorbing it all and listening and watching and, you know, and writing my scripts. And, you know, at this point I had learned they needed to be typed, which was good. Um, and uh, that probably so would, helped. Would, yeah. Right. So I would just spend these days on set writing and writing and just listening. And it was the greatest education. And so I kept doing that. And then I was, I, so most stand-ins, they just grab out of the background, you know, out of some extra, whoever looks close and DPs take the stand-in thing really seriously. And most stand-ins don't want to be stand-ins. They want to be actors. They want to be part of the background. So they're not really paying attention to the technical side of it. And I was, and so I actually developed this reputation where I had DPs requesting me. I stood in for guys that I looked nothing like because the DPs wanted someone there who was paying attention and, and knew, you know, like, oh, I'm being half lit by that, you know, light over there or that tweenie's got, you know, half frost in it right now. And I just, I was learning it all and they, they loved that. So then that kind of became my career for a long time. And but that was, that was, it was never really about acting, you know, it was about the filmmaking. That's actually kind of interesting, but you've also, like, I looked at your IMDb, you also have a couple acting-ish credits. Did, did it sort of transition for fun? <laughs> well, that was, I, there were a couple of guys that I was their regular stand-in, like Charlie Sheen, I was his guy for a few years, and mm -hmm. Don Johnson, and so they would put me, they would give me a line in their movies just for fun, and that's literally what my acting credits are. Like, every acting credit, it's either a Don Johnson or a Charlie Sheen movie, and I have one line. Uh, just out of curiosity, getting these one-liners in uh, a you know bunch of films, which I'm assuming were union films, were you in SAG before you were in the Writers Guild? I was. Nice. I was. It was like I got my SAG card, and you know it was funny because a lot of people I would meet, like you know aspiring actors and and people that were going around town working in background, kind of resented me because <laughs> I could see that. I, yeah, I had I had the SAG card, and so I, I had that, and I was getting paid, but I had no desire to act. You know, I just wanted to be on set. I wanted to be around where they were making the films. I wanted to write. I wanted to direct. Um, and that was another thing, too, I think, why actors liked me, is I left them alone. Hmm. Like, I never got in their business. I never asked them for a line. I never, I mean, Don and Charlie, that just, they started you know, I became part of their entourages, um, which is a whole insanity in and of itself. But it was because, and, and I could say at the time I was friends with them, friends in quotes, but mostly they liked having me around because I left them alone. Mm -hmm. Which I'm sure when you're, you know, a well-known actor, you get approached by everybody wants something. So when you have somebody who doesn't, that's kind of refreshing. Yeah, yeah, it is. And 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 I, I you know, I got a real education in celebrity too, being around, you know, I I was with Charlie before all his meltdowns. Um, but he was still struggling with his demons. Um, and a lot of that was born out of and done the same is you you when you're close to these people and you're you're 
hanging around part of their little tribe and you know you're going out to dinner with them and stuff you just see what that life is like and it's it's not just the paparazzi but it's like constant like you can't breathe you can't you know if you tilt your head a certain way in a restaurant or something somebody comes up to you about mm-hmm. it you know and and it was just it was crazy what i saw what they dealt with on a daily basis mm-hmm. not that that excuses any excuses any of their behavior but I just know that celebrity is a really difficult thing to deal with. Right. No, it is. Um, I wanted to ask, um, having been on set as much as you did, because a lot of writers don't get that experience, at least early on in their career. They can read screenwriting books. They can take screenwriting classes. They can even work on maybe a student film. But actually on set experience, seeing how the sausage is made, so to speak, as a writer with both feature, big budget studio feature experience and network TV experience, what are a few of the things you learned being on set that you didn't learn by taking creative writing courses or by writing on your own or by reading screenwriting books? What are a couple of things that you learned on set specifically about it that would help you as a writer? Yeah, one of the, one of the th- biggest things I learned, and it actually helped me in my writing career early on, because I I came in as a unproven you know writer with with no writing experience, yet I had all this production experience mm-hmm. which ninety nine percent of the other writers don't have, and so I came in like Felicity and Snoop's like my early shows. Even though I was a staff writer with virtually no writing experience, I knew production, and you know, the, the showrunners and the producers found out early on that I was comfortable on set and I knew how to talk to actors and I knew how to talk to directors and crew members, which most writers have to learn that on the job. And so even though that's not a specific craft thing, like that education really helped me a lot in my early TV writing career. And suddenly, you know, even when I was just like story editor level and stuff, I was being sent to set rather than maybe other writers with much more experience on staff because early on they, you know, they would come back from set. Oh, Gio knows how to handle himself. Gio knows where not to stand. You know, Gio knows how to talk to the director, how to, you know, say things. And, and that was all born from my stand-in experience mm-hmm. and, and watching, you know, the directors and actors and writers there. That was that was probably the biggest thing, even though it wasn't actually a technical writing thing. As as far as writing, I think I learned how open you have to be in this business, how you can't be precious with your words, that, you know, if you lose a location, you need to write a whole new scene and it has to be that same scene, but in a totally different location, which makes it a completely different scene. And a lot of writers don't understand that if they have a scene, you know, set of two people talking in, you know, a library and suddenly you lose that location and we're like, we're going to have to shoot it on the patio of the restaurant across the street. That makes it a different scene. Mm -hmm. You cannot write the same library scene there. It's just the environment affects how the characters are going to interact and react and talk. And, And so that's, a big writing thing that I learned is just not being precious with, well, this is exactly how it has to be, or it's not going to work. You know, I learned that early on too, which really helped. 
Right. And not to take it personal either, because it could be need to be rewritten, not because the scene wasn't great as it is, but because of, like you said, a practical reason. The location's lost. We have to move over here. It needs to be rewritten. Again, not because it's not great, but it needs to be rewritten, period. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's that's the thing. It's you, you know, if if you want what you write to be carved in stone, then you need to go be a novelist. Mm-hmm. And you're and you're still going to run into editors that and are self-publish, right? Yeah, exactly. There you yeah. go. Yeah, you got to self-publish your novels. That's it. But you know, filmmaking is such a collaborative medium, and and even though I'm very proud of being a screenwriter because I have a whole rant I can go off on that in of everybody the two three hundred people that it takes to make a film or a TV show, the writer is the only person that creates from nothing. We're the only one that takes something that's not there, a blank page, and creates from it. The director, the actors, the costume designer, everyone else interprets what already exists. And that's from us. We're the mm-hmm. only ones that really create, you know, initially. And that's a, that's a huge responsibility. And it's something I'm really proud of. But even though that's true, you still have to understand that it is a collaborative medium. And, you know, I'm always been from the world of best idea wins, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's a, a director, an actor, a writer with less experience than me, a craft service dude, like if <laughs> anyone can make it better, I am all for that. Now, I just want to jump back really quickly to your uh, um, TV writing experience and talking about on set and You've worked your way up from staff writer all the way up to upper level, you know, co-EP, EP level writer. So you've, you've been through that whole track. And something that we hear a lot is, is showrunners or upper levels will ask, what is your superpower? Because every writer obviously needs to be a skilled writer because that's your primary job. But you also need to bring something else to the table. I, I'd seen on Twitter recently, I don't remember who it was, exactly a showrunner who assembled um, their Avengers of uh, a writing team. But meaning like you have a Hulk, you have a Thor, you have a captain, they're all different. They all perform a different role. They're all superheroes, but they all perform a different role within that unit. Because if you have 12 people that are good on set, but no one that's good in post or no one that can run a room, and then it becomes an issue, then the, the, the showrunner has to do too much. They can't delegate as much, you know, all of these different responsibilities. Um, so what I want to ask you is, uh, what is your superpower? Uh, obviously being on set probably is a huge benefit to, to showrunners and having that set experience, but so, sort of in the writer's room, what is your superpower? I think for me, um, my my sort of one my what would be a non-writing superpower is my ability to manage people. I I've been blessed for whatever reason with uh, on a a long fuse, like a lot of patience, <laughs> which uh, is something that's really kind of rare in our business, mm-hmm. or or at least really uh, desired. And and early on, I was just always able to understand human behavior and and know how to talk to people and and hear if somebody's you know screaming about something that maybe what they're screaming about isn't the actual issue; it's the the symptom. And you know you got to figure out what else is. And and that's that's helped me to run rooms. You know, I, I there were times when I was I was only a supervising producer 
on leverage. Um, but because the showrunners were out of the room or something, I was given the room. And and then season two of Librarians, our showrunner got a an NBC series, and he went off to do that. So I I was the showrunner that season. Um, I I ran that whole show, and it it's it's just that's kind of been my superpowers being able to manage people which maybe comes back from that original stand-in work um you know i know how to talk to the line producer because you know everybody is obsessed with their own job so mm-hmm. when like hair and makeup comes to you and they're complaining about something or someone you have to understand their their context is what they do you know the line producer his job is or her job is save money and you have, so when people are coming at you, actors, you know, they're different insecurities and they're different. You have to understand, you know, every actor, I would always make a point of really trying to get to know them quickly and figuring out, okay, why are they on this show? You know, what is it? Are they here for the money? Are they here for the acting to, you know, work their craft? Are they here because they think this will lead to something else? Are they here as a friend to somebody? That all informs how people behave and so that's that's kind of my my superpower i think is is just being a really good manager of other humans mm-hmm. and talking to newer writers out there this is it, it, just because you're not good with people does not mean that you don't fit into a writer's room that is your specific power paul um but that's great because that means there could be another writer who's maybe good in post. Maybe they're really good sitting in the editing room, knowing what the showrunner wants, so they don't have to sit in there every minute of the day. Absolutely. So, that's that's a know. great that's a great point, Kevin. Because and that's how you assemble an Avengers mm-hmm. writing staff. You know, is it, it it start? It's kind of twofold. It's in when uh, the perfect staff for me. I would I would find everybody's superpower as far as their writing. Mm-hmm. Who's strong with dialogue? Who's strong with story? Who's strong with structure? And then also what you're saying, you know, who's great on set? Who's great on post? I've been on shows. I'm thinking of somebody right now. There was a writer that was kind of a mid level producer level, and this person was just a complete introvert, like mm-hmm. brilliant writer, but they almost got hives when it was time to go to set and stuff. And it was like, so you make allowances for that, you know, and, and that person, as it turned out, was fantastic in post mm-hmm. because they were in, they just felt comfortable. They're in this dark little hole, you know, and they're just focused on their art, their craft. And so, yeah, you find everybody's strength, you know, not every, you don't, you don't want 10 people that are great at the same thing because right. it'll be a bad staff. Mm-hmm. And you don't cover all your bases. It's like yeah. having a bunch of first basemen, but no one's at third. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, like, when you look at when, when younger writers get show, like it used to be a hot thing that, that, you know, back before features and television kind of molded with streaming and everything, it used to be like, you're a feature writer or you're a TV writer. And when a, a feature writer would pitch a TV show, you know, I'm thinking of, I, well, I don't want to mention the show, but you know, these feature writers would come in and have no experience in television. And so they would be the quote unquote showrunner, but they wouldn't have a clue what to do. And so they would bring in, you know, people, the, the number twos, uh, they were called the co-EPs who would basically run the show for these people and kind of teach them. And it's funny for a while in, in my career, I got this reputation, some agents I had at the time, they're not my agents anymore, but they used to sell me as like, Oh, he's the Michael Clayton. 
like he's the guy, like I got this rep where I would come in on shows with either a really horrible showrunner or somebody that was just really super hard to deal with mm -hmm. um, or a show that was in trouble. And, and I'd come in with my mop and bucket, you know, to, to clean the mess. Mm -hmm. Now let's go back a little bit and you were a stand in for 10 years making, you know, doing that that was turned into your career somehow for for a period of time how did you go from in college creative writing wanting to be a writer to being a stand-in for like you had said about 10 years to okay now i'm going to be a professional writer how did you make that leap and what was your first job that you actually got as a professional writer so i was a stand-in and i'd been doing it for a long time and i started to and I was still writing in my own time, but doing nothing with it at all. Because mm. I was working so hard to go from job to job to stay employed. And there was a moment, um, I think I was standing in for James Spader on Supernova, I mm. think, a Walter Hill film. And I had this moment where I realized I was standing. There was a, there was a scene with like five actors in it. So there were five stand-ins. And I had this moment where I realized, man, I'm like by far the oldest stand in here. <laughs> and that, and that kind of made me blink, you know, and I was like, okay, I've got a closet full of crew jackets, but what am I doing? And that, it was that film that I decided I'm not going to stand in anymore. That was my last standing gig. And so then I had a, I had a really good friend who was a first AD and he had hired me a bunch of times and stuff. And he was doing this new movie called Replacement Killers. Mm. And he said, hey, there's this, this, you know, Asian actor in it and he needs a driver. Would you be interested in that? Because he had called me to be a stand-in. I was mm -hmm. like, I'm not standing in anymore, man. And he's like, and I said, okay, yeah, who's the actor? And he's like, oh, it's this guy named Chow Yun-Fat. And what my friend didn't know is that I had been obsessed with Hong Kong cinema for as long as I could remember. Like, and he's a legend. Oh my God, yeah. he is. He's, you know, he, he's the, the De Niro of, of Hong Kong or whatever mm -hmm. you want to put it, like pick your actor. And I was like, oh my God, yes, please, please, please. I know everything about Chow Yun-Fat. And so I got the job and there, and Yun Fat had this, his wife, Jasmine, who was kind of like this sort of unofficial manager of him. And she had to vet everybody around Yun Fat. And so the driving gig was for two weeks and then they would evaluate whether I could keep the job or not. And by the end of that two weeks, Yun Fat said, oh, I want him to be my assistant. Oh, wow. And so I became his first ever um, non-Asian non born assistant. And spent that whole movie with him and it was like one of the best experiences of my entire life career-wise like it's still up there even with the best writing gigs I've ever had he is one of the absolute finest human beings on this planet and so I I did that movie with him and and we got to know each other really well and spent a lot of time uh, together and he and his wife and they knew I aspired to be a writer and we were in Chinatown one day and getting some stuff and he and we're talking about life and everything and young fat would just go you know a lot of people come up to me and say hey i want to be an actor what should mm -hmm. i do and i tell them you should go act and he just kind of like looked at me and i'm like okay yeah i get it and <laughs> so we were we were wrapping up that movie and we were in pre-production for the corruptor 
and I was working on that. And then it was, it was getting ready. It was going to be time to go to New York for that shoot. And I was like, I think I'm going to stay and try to write. And he's like, good, because I would have fired you if you had come to New York with us because you need to, you need to write Paul. And that was it. Like he, he had, I credit him with my career in a lot of ways. And, uh, and so that was my last non-writing gig. And I, um, I started focusing on my scripts and I, by this point I'd written a bunch of spec TV scripts and, you know, I gave them out to people. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a manager. Cause that's a whole nother sort of, uh, misconception is that, Oh, you've got to get an agent or manager, you know? And, uh, and within, in less than a year after that, I got my first gig, which was Snoops. I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember that epic, uh, show. David E. Kelly created it. It was, it was 13 and out, uh, as it should have been. And it was, it was female private eyes who tended to lick whipped cream off each other during sweeps week. Um, and that was, that was my first, I, I got that. I got a, a freelance script on that. And then I was offered the staff job and then they got canceled. Mm. Um, and then as happens frequently. Yeah. And then, but then that same week, JJ Abrams had, had read a spec of mine and called me in for Felicity and, I got hired for season two of that. And, and that was my, my, I was off to the races then. No, that's great. Uh, and that was back in the day when it was specs, not originals, original pilots that were sent out as writing samples. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't want yeah. people out there listening to think that now you send out specs and you can get gig that way because that's, that, that doesn't tend to happen nowadays. It's that's still a correct. writing sample, but it's just, it's changed. Now they want original pilots. Yeah, I think I think most most showrunners, most people in charge. I mean, there's still some old school folks that like reading specs, but it's really a dead thing. It's like you get hired now on original pilots, on short stories, on mm-hmm. plays, like which is good. I think that's why the writing is so great now in television. It's the greatest it's ever been, probably because people are getting so much more opportunity. You know that that you don't have to write a Law and Order spec to get a job in television. You know, right. you can write some brilliant short story and that's the whole thing too. A lot of aspiring writers are always obsessed with format and, and, and structure. And, you know, they read these awful, awful books to save the cats and all these other books that are just terrible. And they get obsessed with the wrong thing. They think that it's all about, you know, some blueprint that you have to have. And they put that ahead of the writing and they don't realize all they're doing is their, their specs or their screenplays, whatever they're writing all, they're just sounding exactly like everyone else's who mm. lives and breathes those books. And it's not about that. It's about your voice. It's about originality. You know, I mean, I, I always say I can teach somebody format. I can teach somebody structure. I just want somebody that's writing from their soul and I can teach all the other crap, you know, and that's, that's why those people rise to the top. You know, we hired someone on NCIS New Orleans, even though that's like a very you know, have a heavily structured, very specific format show, you know, supposedly it's not all a character, it's all formulaic, which there's definitely an argument to be made that it is. I mean, it's a giant franchise, but, but somebody on that staff got hired off of a play mm-hmm. that they wrote a one act play because you just knew, wow, they're a great writer. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And while everyone writer going back to the superpower uh, discussion, while every writer should be good. I mean, every writer that's on a staff is probably a good writer or you wouldn't be there. You'd be doing something else, but not everyone has to be amazing at 
dialogue or character development or you know uh, structure like everyone has certain strengths going back to that so if you're a great yeah, writer I think, I, I think you're right the most important thing the one thing they all need to have no matter what they're particularly good or not good at is they just have to understand story and story you know there's there's all kinds of websites that charge money to explain the complexities of three act structure and everything and it's literally beginning middle and end it's right. set up conflict resolution we all inherently know story we've been we've been being told stories and listening to stories since we were toddlers and everyone inherently knows story structure but it gets so convoluted, especially with screenwriting, because, oh, screenwriting's this very specific, crazy, weird thing. And it's not, man. It's mm -hmm. like, tell a good story. That's it. Which it sounds simple, but having been a story analyst for a studio and, and, and worked at an agency and, and been a reader myself, I can tell you that it's not as simple as it sounds. And you'd find, I find... I've read many, many scripts that have a beginning and an end and the beginning is really long and it kind of doesn't, it just dabbles in the middle just a little bit and, you know, things like that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, what you say is a hundred percent true. If you can tell a story beginning, middle and end, that's, that's a great starting point that that's the essence. But I, of what I, I think what you're saying is absolutely right. Like I, and I think I would say that one of the reasons that that it sort of seems like it's so much harder than you think or it's so rare to find is because I think people allow so much white noise in, mm. you know, they instead of just telling a story from their heart or something, they're trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. And then it becomes or a lot of times people will start stuff, especially aspiring writers, you, you mentioned, you know, long first acts, I mean, they have a great idea for the beginning of a story. And they hope that that will carry them through the telling <laughs> of an entire story. Right. And it doesn't, you know, I mean, anyway, I think uh, Scott Rosenberg, who's a big writing hero of mine, I think he famously said, anybody can write the first 20 pages of a screenplay and anybody can write the last 10 pages. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's the other part. It's, you know, what I call the elephant grass of page 62, mm. you know, when you're stuck in the muck and, and everything, <laughs> that's that's what separates the, you know, the pros from the amateurs. And I, and I think while it is, I think simple, I think people over complicate it because they, they just allow all this white noise in mm -hmm. instead of, you know, just kind of going back and thinking like, okay, when I watch a show, when I read a book, when I hear someone, you know, my buddy come up to me at the, at the bar one night and go, you're not going to believe what happened to me today. So I was walking into work and it's like, you know, they like there's story structure there. Right. You know? Right. Absolutely. Oh. Um, no, that's a great point. Now, I, I did want to go back really quickly to when you had said you had uh, left being a stand-in slash Chow Yun-Fat's assistant and got a staff gig, your first staff gig on uh, the David E. Kelly show with Snoops. Yes. How did you get read? Because nowadays it's 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 a little bit different in that I think it's not impossible, but very difficult to get read if you're not, don't have representation to send to, to even find out about the gigs or to get your material read for legal reasons, that kind of stuff. Um, well, I think what, what it is, is everyone. And now we're speaking specifically television here, which I believe sure. you have to absolutely be physically in LA, although 2020 may change any, everything. And in the coming, they may be more open because of what they've discovered with zoom. But 
you basically have to be physically there. And then it's everybody knows somebody, mm -hmm. you know, that's true. I, I was a stand in, in basically the feature world. I worked for young fat. I had no connections in television. I was dating a girl at the time who knew somebody that worked on a TV show. You know, she gave my script to that person that, and this person was just like some assistant or something there. They dug my script. And so they showed it to one of the writers that they were close with that writer then showed it to Rob Thomas, who was running the show for David Kelly. And that's how it happened. You know, um, the same way I got my script to JJ Abrams without having an agent or a manager. Um, I mean, he wasn't JJ, you know, Megatron JJ like he is now, <laughs> but he was, you know, he was the hot young guy and had just made this huge deal with, with, I think it was Disney or Warner Brothers, whoever. And, but somebody, um, again, this was like the Snoops thing was happening simultaneously. So it wasn't like, oh, he's done Snoops. But it was somebody I knew, knew, worked, knew the assistant to this director, a TV director, um, not famous at all. But he had had a conversation with JJ because JJ was still only a year into his TV career. And he was kind of like looking for advice and stuff. And so he said, oh, well, I know this guy, JJ Abrams, who has this <coughs> show on, little show on the WB network. And I think they need writers for the second season. Um, I could send him your script, you know, and see what happens. That's what happened. You know, um, it's, it's, it's that, it's that networking thing. It's, it's being kind to everyone. So when, you know, you do need help or something, it's, I feel like those, you know, I only know of all the hundreds of writers that I either know, or I know their stories, even people I haven't met. I only know three writers that ever got their first job because of an agent or a manager. Mm. I, I really believe the, you have to have representation is a misnomer and, and, and kind of a myth. Um, like I only know three that ever got there. And usually it's always like, Oh, somebody knew somebody, or I was a writer's assistant, or I was a script coordinator, mm -hmm. or I was dating this person. And and that's generally how it happens. I always tell people, like, focus on the writing. Put all your energy into getting better rather than getting repped. Um, I, I think that's a better way to go for people. But what you did say, I think, holds a lot of weight as well. Everybody knows somebody. So that if you're not here or at least making relationships in the industry, it's still difficult to get read. With or without a rep, it's difficult to get read because – Everybody, like your script went from a friend, a friend of a friend to a friend of a friend, you know, all, all who was an assistant to somebody or a staff person or staff writer or somewhere or whatever and worked its way up because it was good. But getting that first, you know, in can be difficult if you aren't here or aren't networking. And that can be difficult for a lot of writers. So they think that if they get an agent or a manager that they can put the onus on that person. That way, because a lot of writers are introverts and that way I don't have to network because it can be painful and difficult and, and challenging for a lot of writers to do that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it, and it is, it's, it's super, you know, it's, it's not an easy road there. Mm -hmm. There's, that's the, the hard truth is there's no shortcuts, you know, and that's why I always, I always tell people when I speak at seminars or conferences and stuff, I'll, I'll ask people, do you want to be a writer or do you simply want to sell something? 
you know, because right. if somebody's just looking to sell a script or something, that's a whole different tip and I can't help you there. Mm -hmm. But if you want to build a career as a writer, then that's, it's, it's a long road, man. It's, there are no shortcuts. Everyone talks about the, you know, the lottery ticket stories, you know, the, the always sunny in Philadelphia stories or, you know, Koppelman loves to say like routers is the first thing I ever wrote. Um, but those stories are, you know, one out of every 10,000. Mm -hmm. And even if it's the first thing you ever wrote that was sold or produced, most of the times those are stories. And I don't know if it's the case in Brian Koppelman's case, but for a lot of people, it's like, oh, that's the first thing I wrote, meaning this first thing that I felt comfortable showing to other people or first thing that got sent out. But they spent, you know, in college, they wrote two screenplays, you know, so they learned the format. They learned what they were good at. They wrote, they got their bad material out first. Yeah, um, that's 100%. You know. that, is, that is such a great point. I'm so glad you said that because it, it's funny because I've, I've talked to Brian before about his whole thing with the rounders and stuff. And, and while that, was maybe his first attempt at a screenplay mm -hmm. he you know he was doing various forms of writing he was trying to be a writer for years and years he always says i was a block writer for 20 years but he was trying to create stuff and it wasn't until he connected with david levine mm. who had been writing who had just been cranking out stuff that whole time and then they came together and so yeah that was their first screenplay they tried to tackle but yeah, there was a there was a truckload of writing that came before that. You know, I mean, Scott Rosenberg, who I mentioned earlier, he he wrote. I think he said he had fourteen feature screenplays written before he ever sold anything. Mm -hmm. You know, and Tony Gilroy, who's who's my biggest hero to me, he is the the best we have right now. And you know, he talks about even though he grew up with a famous screenwriter father and he had, you know, he was within the industry and stuff. He wrote and wrote and wrote before he ever sold a thing. Mm -hmm. It's that's, that's a great point that I think people don't talk about enough is, you know, if you write one thing and then you, you know, you show up in Hollywood and it's like, all right, where's my office? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a, it's going to be a really dark time for you. Well, and it's interesting because half the emails I get are genuine questions about something in particular. Oh, I'm writing something with a friend, you know, but I'm doing most of the work. How should I do? We do the credit stuff, you know, things like that. And the other half is I wrote a screenplay. How can I sell it? <laughs> well, you know there I mean? you go. That's, so. that's where I said the thing like, do you want to sell something or do you want to be a screenwriter? Right. Because they are vastly different things. And, I, I and only one is a career path. Exactly. And that's it. And, and there's a lot of people and I think and it and sometimes people are like, oh, that's so mean. You know, you're so harsh. But it's a really good way to weed out those like the people that just want to sell something, the people that, hey, I've got an idea for a movie. Oh, hey, I wrote a screenplay. How can I sell it? Like they don't have any business being here. You know, they're, the people that I want to truly help and the people I believe will truly make it are the ones that are willing to eat top ramen for two years you know the ones that are just cranking out you finish a script and instead of obsessing with sending it to agents or managers you start writing the next script mm -hmm. and the next script you know when the the coolest things were when i was younger is having these writing groups where i got lucky enough to be around three or four other people that were all aspiring like me to have careers mm. so we would we would sit around and talk about the craft and the art. We wouldn't sit around and talk about how do you get an agent? How do I get my script to, you know, John Favreau? 
how do I like, it's just a different mindset. And, and while you could certainly succeed with the wanting to sell something mindset, I just think you're, you're in, you're in the wrong lane, man. You know, like go do something else. If you, if you don't live and breathe this, if you, if you don't wake up every day and can't wait to get to the keyboard or notepad, even if you're blocked at the moment, you know, don't do this. It's, it's too hard. Find something else. Only do this if it's truly your passion. And then if it is, respect it enough to try to get as good as you can mm-hmm. at it. You know? Right. There was another thing recently I talked to a, a, a really well-known screenwriter who's a, I'm fortunate enough to call a friend. And this guy, he's a seven-figure feature writer. Like, that's his fee. He's been doing it for 20 years. He's got at least half a dozen movie credits. And we were talking the other day, and he was telling me how, like, this is script 54, whatever, that he's working on in his career. And he's like, I found this. I hit this point, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm terrible at this. Oh, my God, I'm a fraud. I can't, you know, this is garbage. And it's like we all go through that. Every one of us, no matter what level we're at, it's just part of being a writer. At some point, you're going to think what you're working on is crap. You're going to think that you're crap. And it's those that love it enough to just push through that and keep going and keep writing the bad versions. That's the ones I think who are going to make it, you know, tenacity. Mm-hmm. It's funny how you mentioned that because that literally was my next question because I've been asked recently and I get asked a lot from about imposter syndrome because everyone from newbie writers hitting fade in for the first time to, you know, Oscar winning screenwriters who are penning their Oscar speech. Uh, do you, again, as a network franchise series showrunner to, you know, big budget studio feature screenwriter, do you have imposter syndrome ever? And what do you do to sort of push that aside and, and, and keep the grind going? I have it on. I have it on every single project, and and I would bet heavily that every professional working screenwriter has the same thing. And I, it's funny. I just I had to I had to do a pitch last week over over Zoom, and it's this project that I'm really excited about that I'm I'm doing. I'm adapting a show from another country, and I've done this for a long time, and I'm and I'm good at it i can say i'm not great but i'm i'm solid and still i was a wreck like in the couple hours before this pitch because i'm like oh my god what am i doing well you know what am i going to say i can't pitching isn't writing it's car salesman stuff it's garbage you know i i can't do this and then you know it comes on and i just go i just get into my flow and i do my thing and it you know it finished and the producer called me he's like oh my god that one's great man he's so excited and but I was panicked and that was, you know, after doing this for over 20 years and I had the same thing. I'm, I'm in the middle, I'm waiting on notes from a friend for a, a feature spec that I I'm writing. And it's this, it's probably the biggest thing I've ever tried to write. It's a very big glossy heist film. And I've had two or three different times in the middle of it where I just was like, I can't finish this. I'm not good enough. I can't, I don't know what to do. Every, every action sequence I came up with was derivative of something that already exists, you know, and everything. And I, I cost myself a couple of months writing this because I let that imposter thing get to me. And I had to go back and just 
put the bad version down so I could get it done and send it off to the people that I use to be my first readers. And in the email say, Hey, look, I've got placeholder dialogue in this. Hey, look, there's a couple of scenes here that I don't want them to be what they are, but I had to get it done. Like, it's just, you just have to keep writing. And if you, if you're overwhelmed with that, with that self-confidence thing, you know, bombing out or, or spiraling out, it's like, just write the bad version. You have to sort of almost get that out of your system. So then you make room for the good version. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but that's, that's what I do. And, but it happens on every single project, man, even to this day. Mm-hmm. And I think at least from what I hear from reps and, and, and producers and executives, people that I talk to, they're more concerned about writers who don't have that because they're not, you know, ones who are overconfident thinking that this is the best thing you're ever going to read because there's no room for improvement. There's no uh, collaboration. There's, there's nothing. It's, it's they, that person's going to be difficult. Even if it's brilliant, that person's going to be difficult to work with probably. Um, that is so true. You're a hundred percent right on that. We, we, I, my writer friends and I, they you know, have had little sayings and jokes and stuff about that, that, you know, the, the fastest way to tell that somebody's not a writer is, is if they think they're a good writer, you know, like there was a guy, there was one show I was on, this was way back in the day, but there was a writer who would, our offices were all down this one long hallway. And this guy would go out into the hallway. This is a true story. And he would call all of us out of our office. He's like, everybody, come here, come here, come here, come out here. You got to hear this. You got to hear this. And he would read his own scene that he just. (laughs) And he's like, he was so in love with his own work and his own words. And we'd all stand there. And I mean, this didn't happen once. This happened like three times. And we're all just looking at each other going, yeah, great, man. And what's funny is like, looking up on IMDb and stuff and seeing that was one of the last jobs that guy ever had. Like he, he didn't, he was, he was out of the game. He was out of the game very quickly after that. And it was cause like that guy just thought, you know, he was brilliant. He mm-hmm. just Frank Pearson, you know, he, he just thought this is so great. You should all be so glad that I'm here helping you on this little TV show. Right. And even people like Vince Gilligan, who probably could do that isn't like that. You know what yeah, I mean? Right. Yeah. Vic Gilligan's a great example. I mean, I've, I've never met him, but I've, I've seen a ton of interviews with him and, and I, I know people that have worked for him and with him. And he just sounds like an amazing guy. Mm-hmm. Like he's so incredibly brilliant and yet so incredibly humble. Mm-hmm. And that I, you know, I find that even, even some screenwriters I know that are really arrogant there's they if they're good i mean there's bad screenwriters that are making living but the ones i know that are really good even ones that have tremendous ego like i'm thinking of and i can say this because he's a friend of mine craig mazin like tremendous ego and craig will admit that but he is also one of the most humble dudes when it comes to his actual work and his writing and it's like it's not lost on me that 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 usually goes with good writing Mm -hmm. and how good was chernobyl right Oh man. It's amazing. Yeah. 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 I have a, I have a, a, one of my best friends is an actor. Um, and we were just talking about it the other day. He's in New York right now. And, you know, we haven't seen each other in forever because of everything. And we were, he, we were just actually talking about that the other day. Like God, Chernobyl, man, you talk about a walk off home run. Mm-hmm. You know? At that point you just, yeah. 
I don't know. I can't even say you, everyone dreams about having something on their resume. I mean, you know, uh, something that good that they've worked on that they've done. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that Craig did that by himself, Mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm speaking of the actual writing, not, I know it takes a village and he had amazing people working to make, make that thing. But, but I mean, he wrote that thing himself. Right. Like it's, um, it's just amazing. Yeah. When you see, when you have something like that on your resume or Gilligan has breaking bad Mm -hmm. or, you know, I mean, Simon and the wire, it's just like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. Every writer aspires to have at least one thing like that. Yeah. I don't even want to say at least, I mean, that's the thing, you know, if if you're like Gilligan and you have that and you have better call Saul, then I mean, you're, that's, that's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's your six Super Bowl range. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You're the Tom Brady right there. Yeah. Um, uh, We like to ask, especially now that people have so much more, a lot of people have so much more free time where we're not mingling. uh, We're not going out and doing our normal activities. Um, What have you been reading, watching, playing, or listening to recently that you especially enjoy? Um, That's a, that's a really great question. Cause I, it's funny, I have the only social media I have is Instagram. And I, and I was earlier in the year, I was posting a lot of stuff like you got to keep going. I know it's like hard right now. Mm-hmm. But and I, and I found I had this run over the summer, where I, I had just finished a, a pilot, and it, it went out and it didn't sell. And I was, you know, you, you have to walk that off the rejection. And then I was just kind of in this space, like, what am I going to do next? What am I going to write next? And I had this great run. I got into watching old movies, like movies I hadn't seen in 20 years or more. A lot of movies from the seventies and, you know, the wild bunch and, and even stuff from the forties. And I, it was, I spent like this week, like I got, I had a whole run of Hal Ashby. Like I watched almost every one of Hal Ashby's films all in a row. And it was so on one hand, so just pleasurable and like, with the madness that was happening in the middle of 2020 and and not just with COVID, but all the other stuff going on, all the negativity and and darkness, it just watching stuff that inspires you, at least for me, just sort of gave me a sense of calm. Just like, you know, you watch them is like, Oh my gosh, that's so good. You know, and you have the thing like I could never do anything that good, but you're also inspired at the same time. And so I got, so I had a run this summer of watching a ton of stuff from the sixties and seventies. Um, and even some from the eighties, I, I, the verdict was in there, mm. you know, I had a Sidney Lumet run and, uh, and so that was, that was it. And then, um, reading wise, I'm always reading. That's one thing I, I heavily recommend to, to everybody is I know there's, everybody says, you know, read screenplays, read screenplays. And there's, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that you learn a ton from reading good and bad screenplays. But I also advocate reading fiction, reading novels, reading short stories, other forms that aren't the screenplay form. Mm-hmm. For me, that that just keeps my, it, it keeps my instrument sharp. It keeps my muscles toned, you know? Um, so I'm always reading. I'm, I'm a buddy of mine writes these mystery novels. Um, he actually, they created a show called Bosch from his series of oh, novels. Wow. And, uh, he just came out with a new a new book. He's got a he's got another character that they made the Lincoln lawyer from his series of novels. Um, yeah, Mike's doing well. <laughs> um, and uh, and I just read his new book. And so I'm always I always have 
several novels on my to read pile. Um, and right now, like I finished his book and literally that afternoon, I finished it in the morning that afternoon. I started reading the next book. Mm -hmm. I just, I read all the time. And right now I'm on a mystery crime fiction run. Well, what is that quote? Every good writer is a good reader. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, um, I don't think you can read enough as a writer. Like I, you know, and again, I've, I've crossed paths with sort of these aspiring writers or up and coming writers. And I ask, you know, I'm like, what do you read? And they're like, oh, I don't really read. You know, I watch lots. I, th I think mm. Tarantino kind of screwed it up for a lot of people because it became this whole, the mythology of the video store clerk, mm -hmm. you know, and oh, he just watched movies and that's all you got to do, you know? And, and I, I think there's a reason that, you know, every, as, as, you know, look, you can debate Tarantino all day, but every single movie he's made was his version of a movie that already existed. He's, he's created nothing from scratch, nothing original like Wes Anderson or PTA or, you know, those guys. And it's like, you look at those guys or, or the Nolan brothers, they are voracious readers. Like those people, those guys read all the time and still do. And I think, uh, I think, yeah, I don't think you can ever read enough. It's, it's super important for all of us. Mm -hmm. And what I will say about Tarantino is uh, in terms of writing versus filmmaking, versus, he's a great storyteller, but he's also the director. So him being able to assemble a film and, and, and tell a story is, is really great, whether or not his screenwriting, his screenplays, because like, for example, I know that Kill Bill was, I mean, like a 200 page script. I mean, he just kind of started writing and just kept writing and writing and writing. Anyone else writes that? It's not seeing the light of day. No one's reading a 200 page screenplay from, you know, someone, you know, just a right. random writer. Right. But that's, and, and that's a great point. And, if, and people that know me know, I, I, I don't really care for him personally at all and all, but, but I, I will give credit for his filmmaking ability. But like what you're saying is exactly true. If he, if, if 200 page kill bill had been his first thing that he went out with and instead of reservoir dogs or mm. whatever, like mm. we wouldn't have the QT that we have right now, right. you know? And, and that's a great point, you know, it's, it's, but to his, as much as I have my issues with him, to his credit is exactly what you said. He just starts writing and he, and from the beginning, not, not now after he's rich and famous from the beginning, he never gave a damn about what people think. Mm -hmm. He's like, I'm writing for myself. This is my, and you know, and you can debate all day as a city on fire and reservoir dogs and, mm -hmm. and, and all that. But he had an idea and he wrote it his way, his voice, his thing. And, you know, that's, I think, a direct connection to his success is he wasn't even though he was he was taking movies that already existed and writing his own version of them. He was still his originality was still coming out and his his own voice still comes out like mm -hmm. you can read a Tarantino script without a cover page and you'll know within 10 pages who wrote it. Right. Absolutely. You know, and that's that I think is something, you know, the great writers, if you can pick up a screenplay without a cover page and know who wrote it like that's there you go that's originality that's voice that's right. you know somebody that's operating at the top of their game right absolutely same thing could be said for the coen brothers or you know whoever i mean yeah, there's definitely exactly. a handful exactly. of those those writers yeah. out there I, I even think it goes to television i think gilligan or sean oh Devine yeah yeah are, you know you're gonna know because because that's that's voice you just yeah. i can't talk about it enough 
And it's, I don't think it's something that can be taught, but I think it's something that can be brought out of an individual. Sure. You know, that they, everyone has a voice and it's just figuring out how to get it onto the page. Right. Like Sorkin and David E. Kelly, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, That's really quick. I don't, I know we're, I know we're running yeah. time. No, no. When you said Sorkin, one of my favorite moments, I'll tell it really quick. I was on um, The Librarians and John Rogers, who was a creator of that and, and, and showrunner. Um, yeah, I love, John's a very good buddy of mine. I owe him a lot. And we were on, we were up in Portland shooting and, uh, he was in the bar. I was at the bar. John and Frakes and I were at the bar listening to John Rogers and an actor, one of one of the guest stars of one of our episodes. They were at the bar and we'd been at the bar for a while. There had been a few drinks for it. <laughs> and they were into the most heated yet entertaining debate about Aaron Sorkin. Hmm. It was just, it was so great because the actor was calling him our Shakespeare and John Rogers was calling him, you know, the most overrated screenwriter in history. And it was just, it was amazing to hear these two people going at each other about Sorkin. It was really, Frakes and I, oh my God, we were laughing so hard. <laughs> uh, and I just wanted to touch base really quickly. Um, I, we use, or I use sports metaphors a lot when referring to uh, a screenwriting and a career and things like that. And you talked about like having to walk off when your pilot didn't get picked up or talking about um, uh, like for like Mason in his walk off home run of Chernobyl. Um, Just to throw that out there for writers who may get discouraged uh, that the really best hitters in professional baseball hit 30%. That means seven out of 10 times they're walking off defeated. Like they lost the, the pitcher won that one only three out of 10 times do they actually hit the ball and put it in play and get on base. And before you say, Oh, well, that's just a moment in time. He just walked up. Like how easy is that versus writing an entire screenplay, which could take you six months to do, but take into consideration that these major league hitters, every game before a game, they're hitting a hundred balls in practice every day. They're hitting hundred balls and they've been doing it for probably 15 years before that to get to the major leagues. So if you count the time invested, it's incredibly challenging for that split second that they have, that 30 seconds they have on, that, on, on home plate to hit that ball. How many hundreds of hours went into that? Thousands of hours. You know, what is it, 10,000 hours, that um, the Malcolm Gladwell thing? Um, so, you know, I just wanted to throw that out there. That that, I, there will I be lots that. of failures. There will be lots of failures. I love that. That's, that's a great point. And I, I'm also a huge sports fan. And mm-hmm. And yeah, people don't think about that a lot. When you look at what you just talked about specifically, baseball, you know, if you succeed three out of 10 times in your career, you're in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. You know, it's like you're a 300 hitter your career. You're probably going to the Hall. Right. And and it's it's a great analogy to make with screenwriting that you said that not only are you only succeeding 30% of the time if you're one of the best, mm-hmm. but how much preparation went into that. And that, that just goes back to what we talked about earlier with, you know, you can't write enough. You can't have enough screenplays on, on, in, on your computer. You can't have enough short stories written. You can't ever, you know, to just keep doing it. And, and we're going to strike out way more than we succeed. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I haven't, I haven't been on staff since NCIS New Orleans, which was 2018. And I've had, one, two, three, four projects in the last two years that, you know, I put my heart and soul into 
and they didn't go. You know, I had, I, I said earlier, I wrote a pilot earlier this year and I got paid for it and they, the studio sent it out. Nobody wanted it. You know, last year, November of 2019, I was, I thought I had a show, you know, we, I had two big actors attached to this, this comedy I wrote about golf, believe it or not. Um, and we had sold it to Peacock on a Thursday. Mm-hmm. And that weekend I was talking about getting ready to go location scouting to, to shoot the pilot. And Monday morning came and they were like, oh, Bonnie Hammer decided to reboot Punky Brewster instead. Mm. And we were dead. And, you know, it's like that one. I He talked about having to walk off something mm-hmm. like I walked around the streets that night for a while, you know, I, yeah. and I've done that more than once and that's it. You just, you, you walk it off, get a good rest. And then you're right back in the batting cage the next day, you know, taking your swings. Yeah. You have to, nobody walks up to the plate on the seventh game of the world series uh, <laughs> to hit that, you know, when they never, when they haven't been to batting practice, like ever, right. you know, or we've gone right. to the batting cage at their local uh, uh, putt putt golf place for 30 minutes and you show up to the world. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. And that, you know what, that's, it's another great analogy, man, is just think about not the starters and you know, in the, in the bottom of the, you know, ninth in the world series and they need a pinch hitter, mm-hmm. you know, the guys who've been sitting in the dugout that are ice cold the whole time, like, and they haven't started a game in how long or haven't even been in the lineup in how long yet, you know, every practice, every training session, those guys are out there taking their swings mm-hmm. and working and running laps and eating right. Because when you get your time, you know, you've yeah. you got to be ready. And you got to make it count. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for coming on the show today and chatting with us, Paul. I really appreciate it. It's been great. Absolutely. This was a, this was a tremendous pleasure, man. I have a, I have a lot of respect. I told you off air how, I think you're one of the best at, at, at doing this. So it was, uh, it was my honor to, to be invited on. No, I appreciate it. And you're going to be able to stick around, answer a few more questions, talk about Chow Yun Fat and all, all your yeah. other stories uh, on yeah, the after well, show on love Patreon. To. Love to. Great. Um, and check out Paul's website. Um, it's Paul <laughs> Gio. That's um, P-A-U-L-G-U-Y-O-T.com. And what's your Instagram handle? Um, well, it, my website's actually .net. .net. Um, oh, okay. That's go good to, to know. .com. It's an insurance salesman in Ohio. Is it really? Um, and, and I'm sure he has a fabulous website too. So you <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I'm .net. I have my website hasn't really been updated in 2020. Like I don't think I've done anything in a year on it. Um, but Instagram is where I'm most active. And that is at, it's p.geo. So P period G-U-Y-O-T. There you go. Instagram. And if you have questions about the craft or business of writing, be sure to check out um, scriptsandscribes.com. You can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. Thank you again, Paul. Stick around for a bit, but I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. And thank you all for listening.